Uh, welcome to today's talk, which is The Intolerance of Tolerance. It's run by the UWA Christian Union. So yeah, it's pretty important for us as a society to think about the way culture works, um, how culture changes and how that affects us because it's pretty influential on yeah, the way we think and the way we act. And it's not a bad thing to be conscious of that rather than just kind of getting swept along with what culture tells us. So today's topic uh, is tolerance, and it's been quite a prominent idea in culture over the last 200 years or so, but what exactly does tolerance mean? Has tolerance changed over the last few years? Is it a bad thing? Is it a good thing? Is it something that can benefit society? And so they're the two kinds of topics uh, that we'll be thinking about today. So today we are super excited to welcome Dr. Don Carson, and he's going to be speaking on this topic of tolerance to us. Uh, Dr. Carson is the research professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Illinois. He's written uh, nearly 30 books at both popular and more academic levels, so anything from like postmodernism to prayer. And yet he'll be our speaker today. So if I can please invite Don Carson up to talk to us. Jess, and thanks to the Christian Union for inviting me. Um, believe it or not, I've been to Australia's fair shores about 75 times, um, but this is only my third time in Perth, so I'm having to do some catch-up. I'm sure it's a matter of saving the best of the last. Um, and this is certainly my first time on this campus. Is this on? Can you hear me? Yes? Okay. To speak of the intolerance of tolerance might strike some people as choosing for a topic a rather wretched oxymoron, like talking about the blackness of white or the hotness of cold, now the intolerance of tolerance. Um, and, and yet, there's something that is uh, important in the topic, because what I am arguing is that there are some forms of tolerance, what is often called a new tolerance that brings intolerance into it inescapably, and it's worth knowing what that is. Part of the argument turns on the fact that tolerance has changed, and it's worth speaking of the old tolerance and the new tolerance. Let's begin with some definitions. If you look up tolerance in the Oxford English Dictionary, uh, the first definition that's offered is to endure, sustain, pain, or hardship. That's a medical usage that's still in vogue, but apart from that, it's not used anywhere else. So a person has a certain pain tolerance or can tolerate certain drugs or, or, or whatever. Much more common, to allow to exist or to be done or practiced without authoritative interference or molestation, to bear without repugnance, to allow intellectually or in taste, sentiment or principle, to put up with, Another dictionary, to allow, permit, not interfere with, to respect and recognize another's beliefs without necessarily agreeing or sympathizing, to put up with, to bear, as he tolerates his brother-in-law. I'm sure you could choose your relative. <laughs> now, in all such definitions, um, toleration presupposes disagreement. You don't say, I agree with you entirely, I tolerate you. 
to tolerate in the old tolerance presupposes disagreement, but then even though the person is adopting a stance you don't like, you put up with it. You insist, in fact, that he or she has the right to expound that view. And in that sense, the old tolerance is a parasitic virtue. That is, what is presupposed is that there is already a cultural system, a set of values in the culture. And the question arises, how much deviation from that system do you allow before you impose sanctions or, or legal sanctions, punishment, social disapproval, or, or whatever? It reminds you of the old saying often attributed to Voltaire, although there's no good evidence that he actually said it, I detest what you are saying, but I defend to the death your right to say it. And that's the old tolerance. The new tolerance, by contrast, works a little differently. Now you are not permitted to disagree with another stance in a particular domain. The old tolerance presupposes you disagree with it, but then put up with it. The new stance says you can't publicly disagree with it. It's got as much value as your own stance. So by the definition of the old tolerance, that's simply incoherent. A capitalist can't say to a communist, oh, we share our common beliefs together. I tolerate you. Or your values are just as good as mine. Your understanding of economics is every bit as good as mine. I tolerate you. No, for, under the terms of the old tolerance, uh, you, you might say capitalist to communist or communist to capitalist. It doesn't really make any difference. Um, I, I frankly detest your entire reconstruction of the role of economics in society and culture. But I agree that you have the right to defend your position. That's, that's tolerance. So as a parasitic virtue, in other words, you already presuppose some system in place. And in that sense, every culture that has ever existed expresses tolerance at some level or another, whether you're talking about ancient Rome or the Stalinist era of Russia, or, it, it doesn't matter. In other words, there were a lot of things that were under control. Some societies had more, some societies had less. But insofar as you allow people to disagree with the norms of that particular culture, you are showing tolerance. And some cultures showed more, some cultures showed less. But still, a parasitic virtue, a virtue that depends on the givenness of a particular culture. But the new tolerance, however, by insisting you don't have the right to say that one thing is better than another thing, means that it becomes vaguely incoherent because you can't say that somebody's wrong and therefore you agree to disagree. You're saying you agree that there is universal approval precisely because you must not say that you disagree. There is... Um, one view of this older view of tolerance, one might call it the secular liber libertarian version, that has another wrinkle to it. The point is that the older view of tolerance makes three assumptions. Number one, there is objective truth out there and it's, and it's our duty to discover that truth. Number two, the various parties in a dispute think that they know what the truth of the matter is even though they disagree with each other. And number three, Nevertheless, they hold that the best chance of uncovering the truth of the matter, the best chance of persuading most people with reason and not with coercion, is by unhindered, unfettered exchange of ideas. That's still the old tolerance. In other words, 
This third assumption demands that all sides insist that their opponents must not be silenced or crushed. Free inquiry may eventually bring the truth out. In the scientific realm, it's more likely that you prove that phlogiston, an imaginary substance that chemists once thought to cause combustion, it's more likely that phlogiston will be exposed as a false theory and oxygen wins, or Newtonian mechanics will be bested and Einsteinian relativity and quantum mechanics will win, provided you allow free inquiry and don't impose sanctions. But there is, as I said, a wrinkle. It was advanced by John Stuart Mill, 1806 to 19, uh, to 1873. He opted for what has often been called a secularist basis to tolerance. In the domain of religion, Mill argues, there is insufficient evidence to come down in approval of any view. So the best stance to take publicly is a kind of intelligent agnosticism married to a benign tolerance. You put up with all kinds of different views, not in the hope that by discussion you find the truth, but you put up with all kinds of different viewpoints precisely because there's not enough evidence out there to find the truth. Now, a parable made famous by a slightly earlier thinker clarifies this quite a lot before we try to bring it to contemporary terms. This was by Gotthold Ephraim Lessing in the previous century. 1729-1781. Lessing sets the parable in the time of the Third Crusades. Uh, there are endless jokes around, as you know. You know, three people go into a bar. This is what they say. This is uh, three people hold a theological discussion, and this is what they say. And the three people in this parable are Saladin, Muslim emperor, Nathan the Wise, and an intelligent Jew, and a Knight Templar representing Christianity. So you've got representatives from the three monotheistic religions. In this uh, parable, Saladin, the Muslim sultan, asks a question of Nathan, the Jew. He says, Nathan, you are so wise. So tell me, what human faith, what theological law strikes you as the truest and the best? which is a way of saying, what's the best monotheistic religion? Instead of answering directly, Nathan tells the parable. Here it is. A man owned an opal ring of superlative beauty and even magical powers. Whoever had it was, because of that ring, fabulously wealthy, but also approved by God and blessed beyond measure able to make friends and, and uh, make his way in society and uh, uh, become well-to-do and, and, and so forth. He had received it from his father, who had received it from his father, who had received it from his father from time immemorial, a magic, beautiful, wealthy, powerful opal ring. He had three sons, and he loved each of them equally. Three sons, you can see where this is going, three world religions of a monotheistic sort. And because he loved each of them equally, he promised each of them individually, in private, that when he died, he was going to pass on that opal ring to that particular son. But of course, as he approached death, he realized he was going to find it rather difficult to live up to this promise. So he approached a spectacularly able jeweler and commissioned him to make 
two more rings as close as conceivable to the master ring, indistinguishable to all normal human inspection. And then just before he died, he called each of his three sons to his side, one by one, and told him that he was giving this son this magic ring. Then he died. Well, eventually, of course, the three sons found out that all three of them had a copy of the ring. Each one had a different ring. So the question then arose, who had the true ring, the original ring? And eventually they, uh, they realized that this was degenerating into something pretty ugly. I mean, the one who claimed that he had the magic ring was really claiming that he was loved best by his dad and his dad had duped the other two. So at psychological levels, this was turning really nasty really quickly. So they approached uh, uh, Nathan the Wise, according to this uh, parable, uh, who, who describes uh, the bickering and the comments and so on. And eventually the brothers ask a wise judge to settle the issue, but his ruling refuses to discriminate. Quote, if each of you in truth received his ring straight from his father's hand, let each believe his own to be the true and genuine ring. In other words, the judge urges the brothers to abandon their quest to determine which ring is the magic original. Each brother should instead accept his ring as if it were the original, and in that conviction live a life of moral goodness. This would be an honor to their father and glory to God. Now, Lessing's parable resonated with people in the late Enlightenment period as being wonderfully insightful and entirely in line with the increasing view that that uh, the three major world monotheistic religions were basically saying the same thing in any way, in any case, apart from a few wrinkles, and, and this builds the virtue of tolerance. But today, the parable would have to be revised. First of all, instead of three rings, we would need dozens of them, if not hundreds. It's not just three monotheistic religions that compete, but all kinds of worldviews and polytheistic religions and essentially non-personal theistic religions like Buddhism and, 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 and so on. Not only so, but the parable as Lessing told it does presuppose that there is at least one ring that is, has got the magical powers. Now we would have to go further and say all of the rings are equally magical or equally non-magical. They're of equal value. You, you don't have the right to say that one is more magical or more powerful or more splendiferous than, than another one. But in some ways, the parable just doesn't work. It's got three ridiculous notions built into it that we need to think about. Number one, the God figure in the parable, that is the man with the magic ring, foolishly promises the ring to each of his three sons, even though he knows full well he can't make good on it. In other words, far from loving his three sons equally, he is presented as a weak fool who makes impossible promises, which is not exactly what the monotheistic religions are trying to say. This is not an incidental detail in the story. It is an essential component that sets up why the father goes to the trouble of deceiving at least two of his sons. So as God made impossible and mutually conflicting promises to his disparate sons, ostensibly loving all of them so much, he ends up lying to them? Number one. Number two, 
The entire parable presupposes that we, the readers, know what God has done. Far from fostering a benign tolerance on the ground that we cannot know which ring is the original, this tolerance is in reality grounded in the dogmatic certainty that God himself has produced fake rings because he cannot bear to disappoint his sons. In other words, the story works only because the reader has this outsider's knowledge of what God has done. Far from advocating a certain kind of epistemological restraint grounded in our ignorance of what God is like, the parable assumes that the reader knows exactly what God is like. He's the kind of father who happily creates counterfeit rings to keep his boys happy and in the dark. Number three. Equally implausible in the story is the way in which the fake rings are physically indistinguishable from the genuine original, yet lacking in the original's power. If over time the original doesn't produce distinctive blessings owing to its magical properties, its magic is so weak as to be irrelevant. The counterfeits, in other words, are not only good copies physically, but they seem to work as well as the original, provided each son thinks the copy is the original. So the power now rests in the imagination of the owner rather than in any objective transforming power in the ring itself. Do you, do, do you see? So in a major respect, of course, Lessing's parable is not very contemporary at all. Both Mill and Lessing thought that there is objective truth out there. There is at least one magic ring. But their rationalist and secular presuppositions drove them to infer that at least in some domains the truth is not accessible. One can think that something or other is true and argue the case, but if one cannot prove that this something is true in a manner that conforms to the verification standards of public science, the wisest stance is benign tolerance. By contrast, the new tolerance argues that there is no one view that is exclusively true. Strong opinions are nothing more than strong preferences for a particular vision of reality, each version equally true. Lessing wanted people to be tolerant because, according to him, we cannot be sure which ring is the magic ring. But he did not deny that there is a magic ring. The new approach to tolerance argues that all the rings are equally magic. That means the reason for being tolerant is not that we cannot know which ring is magic, nor that this is the best way to find out which ring is magic, but rather that since all the rings are equally magic, or non-magic, it is impossible to suggest that any of the rings is merely a clever imitation without magical power. We must be tolerant not because we cannot distinguish the right path from the wrong path, but because all paths are equally right or wrong. That's the new tolerance. And suddenly you discover then that the new tolerance is not a parasitic virtue like the old tolerance. The old tolerance was a parasitic virtue. It depended on some broader scheme in the culture and the question was how much deviation you could allow from that scheme. But in the new tolerance, the new tolerance itself becomes the absolute good. The most important virtue with the new tolerance is that you agree with it. It's the new tolerance itself. It doesn't presuppose any underlying scheme on which it is parasitic. And that means that correspondingly the chief sin is the new intolerance. The trouble is that such intolerance, like the new tolerance, takes on a new definition. Intolerance is no longer a refusal to allow contrary opinions to say their piece in public, but must be understood to be any questioning or contradicting the view that all opinions are equal in value, that all worldviews have equal worth, that all stances are equally valid. Now, believe me, I'm not exaggerating. Let me give you some, some quotes. Here is Leslie Armour, Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at the University of Ottawa. I'm from Canada. 
so I'm allowed to refer to a Canadian. Our idea is that to be a virtuous citizen is to be one who tolerates everything except intolerance. Uh-huh. What he means is you can't disagree with his view of the new tolerance. If you disagree with it, you are intrinsically an intolerant person, and we cannot tolerate that. <laughs> Here's the United, Declaration, the United Nations Declaration of Principles on Tolerance, 1995. Tolerance involves the rejection of dogmatism and absolutism. Yes. Why? Might one not hold a certain dogma to be correct, to hold it absolutely while insisting that others have the right to hold conflicting things to be dogmatically true? Well, yes, if that's the old tolerance. But if it's the new tolerance, well, tolerance involves the rejection of dogmatism and absolutism, which sounds painfully dogmatic and absolute. <laughs> Here's Thomas Hemmelk, Executive Vice President of the National Lambda Chi Alpha Fraternity. The definition of the new tolerance, that's his expression, writing 15, 18 years ago. I didn't make up this new tolerance category. It's been out there circulating for some time. The definition of the new tolerance is that every individual's beliefs, values, lifestyle, and perception of truth claims are equal. There is no hierarchy of truth. Your beliefs and my beliefs are equal and all truth is relative. All truth is relative. If, however, the new tolerance evaluates all values and beliefs as positions worthy of respect, one may reasonably ask if this includes Nazism or Stalinism or the Ku Klux Klan, child sacrifice, assorted ethnic and supremacist groups. It's another very dogmatic position. Oh, there's so many examples that I could give you. Let, let me just list one or two and then for want of time so that I allow some time for questions, press on to what we need to think about in this respect. Here are two examples, both in the religious field. Begin with the website of the Harvard chaplains. Not all religious groups join the United Ministry organized by the Harvard chaplains. Evangelicals in particular opt out and run their own show. So the chaplains feel it necessary to warn against, quote, certain destructive religious groups, end quote, who are not part of the United Ministry. The chaplains, quote, are committed to mutual respect and non-proselytization. We affirm the roles of personal freedom, doubt, and open critical reflection in healthy spiritual growth. We're here to help you have a healthy, happy experience of your own spiritual journey while you're here at Harvard, end quote. Well, I am tempted, I confess, to ask if they think that's why Jesus came, to help us have a healthy, happy experience in our own private spiritual journey. Meanwhile, the chaplains warn against, among other things, those who claim, quote, a special relationship to God, end quote, and especially anything that qualifies, quote, as ego destruction, mind control, manipulation of a member's relationships with family and friends, end quote. Well, you can guess against whom that's targeted. Here's another one. The rising number of Muslims in England has prompted some subtle and not-so-subtle eviction of pigs and their stories. In some schools, the story of the three little pigs is now banned. Muslim school children might be offended by stories about unclean animals. The trend reached its uh, 
loveliest moment when the Council of Dudley in Worcestershire, my, my wife is English, Worcestershire's in the West Midlands, banned all images or representations of pigs from the benefits department on the ground that Muslims coming in for benefits might be offended. So calendars with pigs. This was pig-growing country, incidentally. Porcelain, porcine figurines, pig-shaped stress relievers, spongy things, you know, squeeze back and forth. They all had to go, including a tissue box depicting Winnie the Pooh and Piglet. And all this, of course, in a part of the world which grew a lot of pigs, where you, you'd think that for, for the dominant culture there, pigs are in. When pressed as to why pigs have to go, Mabubur Rahman, a Muslim counselor in West Midlands, explained, it's a tolerance of people's beliefs. What about tolerance of those who think differently about pigs? In the name of tolerance toward the beliefs of Muslims, intolerance is imposed. That's the problem with the new tolerance. In this instance, as one media outlet has put it, tolerance has on the lips of Mabubur Rahman and in the decision of the Dudley Council become confused with Islamist supremacism. That might be a bit harsh, but you understand what they're getting at. No one should doubt that Muslims ought to be free to express their dislike of pigs and pig representations. The problem, rather, is that Mr. Rahman thinks that getting rid of pigs and pig representations is a moral obligation that upholds the virtue of tolerance, whereas he senses himself under no moral obligation to uphold the virtue of tolerance and permit those who rather like pigs and their representations to keep them. So it becomes a power play. And whatever the dominant culture says and labels tolerant is tolerant. It's not parasitic on a deeper, underlying, agreed value system in the culture. And the biggest slam is to label you intolerant. One of the effects of this is that it's extremely difficult to have serious discussion on heated matters. Because if you disagree with some particular stance on one of these axes, it's easy to write you off as intolerant and therefore not worth listening to. And there's lots of that on both the left and the right. Oh, let me give you one more example. And then I'll try to tie this up a wee bit. Michel Houellebecq, I was brought up in French Canada, is one of France's most respected, if least comfortable, contemporary writers, with a sheaf of literary awards to his credit. His stance is roughly that of uh, a much younger Albert Camus, if you're into French literature. In 2002, he was taken to court by four leading Muslim bodies in France, the charge being making a racial insult and inciting religious hatred. This arose because in a magazine interview, he made some derogatory comments about Islam. He dismissed Islam as, quote, the dumbest religion, end quote, which was not a mark of great tact and gentleness. And he unfavorably compared the Quran with the Bible. The former, he said, is poorly written, while the Bible, quote, at least is beautifully written because the Jews have a heck of a literary talent, end quote. <laughs> Which is, again, not calculated to make you a friend. I, no, nobody's debating that point. In, in the court case that followed, several prominent French intellectuals defended Houellebecq. Not a few sided with his accusers. The influential Human Rights League accused him of Islamophobia. Many leftist writers insisted he was so vulgar he wasn't worth defending. But perhaps the most interesting comments came from Salman Rushdie, Many of you will know that name, 
who had himself faced more than a little ire. He wrote this in the Manchester Guardian in England. This was a European-wide case. Quote, but if an individual in a free society no longer has the right to say openly what he prefers, that he prefers one book to another, then that society no longer has the right to call itself free. Presumably then also any Muslim who said the Quran was much better than the Bible would also be guilty of an insult and absurdity would rule. As to the dumbest religion, well, it's a point of view. And Ulbeck in court made the simple but essential point that to attack people's ideologies or belief systems is not to attack the people themselves. This is surely one of the foundation principles of an open society. Citizens have the right to complain about discrimination against themselves, but not about dissent, even strongly worded impolite dissent, from their thoughts. There cannot be fences erected around ideas, philosophies, <coughs> attitudes, or beliefs. Now, let me jump ahead to begin to draw this together. The first thing I'd want to say is that there have been some gains to this new tolerance. People have become more sensitized to stereotypes. It used to be very common in white Western circles to talk about chinks and wops and other abusive terms. Those things, rightly, have gone out of stock, thank God. They're not attractive, they're ugly. Sometimes they were meant innocently, but they can do a lot of damage. So with just about any movement that comes along, you, you, you find some good things and some bad things. And this was one of the good things that came out of the new uh, tolerance. On the other hand, in the second place, the new tolerance is not only internally inconsistent, which I've tried to show, um, but it tends to stifle genuine debate over complex issues. It becomes anti-intellectual. It proceeds so often by vilification, another position is written off as being intrinsically not worth talking about because it is, quote, intolerant, unquote. And various sanctions are uh, appealed to to stop it. So there is increasingly, the last 10 years or so, in many Western countries, um, uh, a, a tendency to uh, try to reduce free speech, to reduce the possibility of a free press, to hold people accountable for any opinion that you don't really like. Uh, and any knowledge of uh, the imposition of controls uh, on uh, free speech in society has such a nasty checkerboard history that you do need to be very careful on that front. On the long haul, you just tend to end up after a while with the power extending farther and farther and farther out until you really do have a totalitarian regime, either in law or in the sanctions and expectations of culture. The third thing to recognize is how uh, extraordinarily narrow is the cultural base for this movement, even though it's very powerful in the Western world. Uh, for one reason or another, I'm on every continent except Antarctica in any two-year period. And, um, and, and then you begin to realize how, how narrow is the Western cultural base that sanctions this, um, this uh, new tolerance. When I'm in the Middle East, for example, uh, and I sometimes lecture in universities that shall remain nameless, um, uh, no one takes this view of, 
of uh, the relativity of truth? No one. Uh, the, the question is who's got it, how you defend it, uh, what's right and why. But, but virtually no university student in the Muslim universities that I've been in uh, adopts the stance that, um, that, 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 that says uh, truth is really relative and you create your own uh, position and you don't have the right to say any other position is, 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 is uh, right or wrong. From, from their point of view, that's just in, in, incoherent. In fact, for many thoughtful Muslim intellectuals, it's a sign of the degeneracy and decadence of the West that they should think something so stupid. Which is, is not to say that they're right. It's a way to say that you must realize that even these massive intellectual movements that we assume in the Western world are themselves functions of a worldview, a frame of reference that can itself be questioned and is questioned in other parts of the world. Do you, do, 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 do you see? Number four, I would argue uh, with many examples that um, it's a point of wisdom for Christians non-Christians, for all who understand something of this move from the old tolerance to the new tolerance, to engage this topic when it comes up. That is to say, to show that the emperor has no clothes, or at best not more than brief jockey shorts. Um, it's, 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 not a, it's not a reliable or stable position. It's a position that is going to do damage with time and stifles intellectual discussion and claims. Now you know that I'm invited here by the Christian group, so I'm speaking as a Christian. But I agree with Voltaire, whether he said it or not, um, that, that uh, if you are an atheist on campus, I want to defend your right to, to defend your atheism. But I also want your right to defend me, to defend my Christianity, too. Uh, otherwise, at the end of the day, it is only a matter of time until it's sanctions that prevail, uh, fear of uh, a rebellion, fear of a protest, fear of crowd control, instead of allowing uh, debate in the public arena of life. And that means when people claim uh, that you don't have the right to speak because you are to be dismissed as intolerant, the right thing to say is to smile sweetly, courteously, treat them with dignity and say, don't you find that just a wee bit intolerant? In other words, we need to reestablish, to regain something of the old civic virtue of tolerance, if it is at all possible, if we have not gone too far in the culture at all. Now, within that framework, I've got an edge to this, of course. I am a Christian. I do think that there is some truth out there. I do think that that truth is embodied in the coming of Jesus and his, the significance of his death and resurrection on the cross. I want to convince you of that. And if you want to convince me of your atheism, Let's have a go at it. Uh, the Bible even dares say, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. We want to engage. We, we, we want to talk. And we want it to show up in people's lives, what it looks like, how it works out. Uh, I want to explain you what Christ did on the cross. And if you want to explain to me the virtues of your atheism, I want to listen to you with respect, even while I'll smile sweetly and say, I think you're wrong. And you have the right to tell me the same thing. Now, I think we have at least a few minutes left before the next class comes in. Are there questions you want to raise? Please. I've got a fan behind me. Could you really speak loudly? I just wonder if you could repeat that. Um, I believe it was the first point you made at the end about the, um, the churches at Harvard University. 
Oh, yes? The Harvard chaplains on their website, you can go and look it up for yourself, so you don't take my word for it. I checked a few weeks ago, and it was still there. Um, the Harvard chaplains basically took the stance that their understanding of their ministry at Harvard University is to um, foster uh, Christians and other religionists uh, with a freedom to follow their own spiritual path to their own spiritual maturity. And therefore, they warn against other religious groups. And clearly, in the context, they're especially targeting evangelicals who uh, insist on any sort of exclusivism or are trying to uh, claim that they can lead you to a special knowledge of and experience of God or, or something of that order. Um, it, a bit of perspective is helpful. For the first three centuries of the Christian church, when the church was growing powerfully for the first three centuries until the so-called Constantinian settlement, the beginning of the fourth century, uh, when Christians were persecuted in various ways through the Roman Empire, um, the, 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 the worst charge that was made against Christians by the Roman government for three centuries was that Christians were too exclusivist. In the pagan world, each pagan world, with all of its polytheisms, um, was allowed, each, each pagan religion was allowed to say it was the best. What they were not allowed to say was that another one was wrong, or that it was the only way to God. Whereas along comes Jesus and says such things as, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That was considered virtually atheistic and certainly hate-mongering by the Roman authorities. Where the Apostle Peter says, there is no other name under heaven given amongst human beings by, by which we must be saved other than Jesus himself. Now, from my point of view, I would want to argue that logically that's either true or rubbish. But whether it's true or rubbish, it does no value anywhere simply to persecute those who hold it. So interestingly enough, Western culture is circling back around for different reasons. There's an, a different undergirding structure of thought. But it is circling around, again, to a certain kind of venom against those who claim an exclusive approach to religious claims. But I don't see how you can read the New Testament documents and decide that Jesus was just another good guy, souped up a wee bit maybe, but another good guy and nothing more. Choose your own good guy. I don't think you can do that. If Jesus was not who he said he was, truly God and a human being, if he did not die for us, if he did not rise from the dead, as far as I'm concerned, the whole of Christianity is rubbish. Turf it out. If you want to believe it, go ahead. Believe your nonsense. But that leaves Christians a pretty narrow place on which to walk. It means he means everything to us. He's changed our lives. He's forgiven our sins. He speaks the truth. And if we try and share that with others and people think that we're narrow because of it, it's price you have to pay. But, but that's it. We'll, we'll, we'll pay it, as the first century's Christians did. Does that help at all? Yes, that helps. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Thanks very much for your talk. Um, I think you made a comment right at the end. You uh, drew a connection to higher education to retain the intellect. But one of the things that really concerns us, I think a lot of faculty in this university, is the growth of managerialism. Um, the overriding of academic collegiality and yeah. uh, respect for scholarship. 
just wondering how is all that connected to the, um, to the emergence of this intolerant outlaw? Is managerialism a response to that trying to enforce a utopian vision? I, I hear some pain in the question. <laughs> but it's a shrewd question. And, and, and so, so at the theoretical level, there's probably no direct connection. At the practical level, it's probably multifaceted, multi-talented. Um, uh, managers, inevitably, are going to be interested in the bottom line. So if, um, and, and the squeaking wheel gets the grease. So if you get some people in an age where victimhood is the best way for getting what you want, if you get some students who claim to be victims, and in all fairness, some are, but some aren't. But, but if the way you get money and win lawsuits and stifle dissent is by claiming to be a victim, then uh, because money is involved in all those kinds of movements and, and legal actions and, and complaints and press releases and all the rest, then uh, managers tend to have a lot of, of, um, of a, a lot vested in, in stifling this stuff as quickly as possible. So that the theoretical issues that I've been dealing with, are the rights or wrongs, or the historical um, pr perspective that analyzes what happens to a society when free speech is, is crushed and so on and so on, all of it goes out the window. It, it, it's in, it, it, all in aid of, of helping the bottom line and, and trying to squash the latest press release. Um, so, so in that sense, there is a, a kind of derivative connection that, that's, that's pretty powerful, all, all right. Um, there is something in, in, when I was a young man, I read a book called The Peter Principle. I, I don't know if you've read it, but it's a, it's a cheeky book. Um, Mr. Peter um, establishes a principle that he claims uh, is as universal as the law of gravity. Uh, namely, that in any hierarchy, there's a universal tendency for everyone to get promoted to his level of incompetence. Um, now, he works it in a variety of ways. It's a very funny book. Um, but, but what you do find in a hierarchical organization is a tendency uh, with, with, with time to, um, to, 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 to grow more and more administration, um, to accommodate more and more of these bodies. And, 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 and so you, you begin to forget with, with time that a university was in the first instance a group of scholars who by their own interaction and teaching and so on built up a, a group of students behind them. And after a while, uh, in the Western model, you tend to have more and more um, o overhead uh, structure. I mean, you clearly need structure. Somebody's got to figure out where I come from, who's going to move the snow. Uh, you don't worry about that particular problem down here. But, <laughs> but, but nevertheless, you get the idea. And, and, and so there are complex movements. And it's already quarter two, and I promised I would let you go. God bless you. <laughs>